Dick. This is Johnny. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How's you? I remember going to Sheffield Wednesday. Troy Deeney scored his 20th goal of the season and I was in with the home supporters supporting Watford. Could you imagine why I wouldn't want to sit in the away end at Hillsborough? No. Well, it's because of what happened in 89. I didn't want to look at the pens or, or anything about that. Well, so, you know, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was disaster, really, wasn't it? Yes, and, and Dick Chester, you have a... Not a, in any part at all in what happened in 89, but you can fill in some gaps. But the point is, Wednesday were awful, Watford were brilliant, and I remember I spent 75 minutes trying not to give away us from Watford, but when Deeney scored his 20th, I just went, yes! And it was in the bit with all the family... It was safe there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but coming out of the ground, I saw Richard Hawley. Yeah. In his three-piece suit, and that was that was what it was worth going. I also went to the memorial. Well, it's the bridge, isn't it? There's like a, a plaque and a bridge. That's right. Yeah. In the Hillsborough Park. Yes, correct. Um, yeah. And that was the only time I've been to. Hillsborough. I did go to an FA Cup semi-final in '99. It was Spurs Newcastle. Um, so I think I knew at that time what Hillsborough meant as a word. And um, you cover your time in football in an insider's job, written with the great John Dyson, who turned me on to what you were doing. And it's out on October the 10th. So are you excited? We're talking a couple of days before it comes out. Yes, um, to be honest with you, Johnny, I've, I've been, I was very hesitant at doing the book. Rather common, because the position I was in, I was always brought up to maintain confidentialities. When I was persuaded to write the book, it, it, it just didn't initially didn't sit right with me. And on top of that, I, once I started, I found it very, very difficult to talk about myself because it, I've never been one to court publicity. I've, I've always been happiest sat behind the scenes making sure everything was right and not getting involved in press or media unless it was part and parcel of the of the job. But I never went hunting. So when I sat down to write a book, I, in fact, I met John Dyson um, after I'd done a few, I think I'd done about three chapters. I met him in, in Birmingham and I, I spoke to John about it and he said, look, this is a book about you and about your time in football, it's no good huffing and puffing, because if you're going to huff and puff, you might as well not write the book, because, oh. it, because it is about your role inside football, so it is about you. There is a precedent, Eric Samuelson, uh, who wrote a book about his time at AFC Wimbledon and being the back end, Ivor Heller was the front end, but you are, you are one of many people, the unsung heroes, the insiders who don't get any publicity. David Gill at Manchester United, would you compare your job to what he did in the Alex Ferguson era? Yeah. Which was? Well, I mean, David Gill, in fairness, really looked as if he wanted to run Manchester United, didn't he? Mm. Whereas you supported um, with a small S, not a big S. Are you a Lincoln City fan? I was brought up in a, a small village just outside of Lincoln, village called Branston, and uh, from the age of about six, just after the Second World War, I used to go with mum and dad one week for the first team, one week for the reserve team. And I remained 
a Lincoln fan, although in the late 50s, early 60s, I split my allegiance between Lincoln and, and going across to Old Trafford. Well, why not? Because they had well, a new team. We had a, had a pal who got a small Austin A35 and about six of us would pile in and go over the Pennines. And Dennis Law, Bobby Charlton, Georgie Best and, and all of those, David Heard. And then, of course, when I, when I eventually joined Lincoln, the manager was, believe it's not, David Heard. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I was going to wax lyrical about the guy who went on to Watford, whom you may have known as well. But tell me about David Hurd as a manager, because he would have learnt everything from Samat and Jimmy Murphy. I can't talk about I can't talk about his training techniques or his coaching, because that's obviously outside my remit. David as an individual was, was OK. I got on with him quite well. I don't think... He was 100% committed to the task. He had a car business in Manchester. He split his time between the business in Manchester and, and Lincoln. And as a consequence, although I wasn't in the dressing room, I think he lost the, the support or belief of the players. Which is terrible. I was just trying to imagine Jurgen Klopp having a side business in like a foreign exchange trader and then coming and running the yes. Liverpool dressing room. It just can't work because... What Graham Taylor did at Watford, I imagine this is what persuaded Elton John and indeed Bertie Mee, who turned him on to, to Graham. He ran every aspect of the club, Graham. Well, in fairness, he wanted to run every aspect at Lincoln City, but uh, the chairman wouldn't let him get involved in, in the commercial or the financial or the administrative side of it. He concentrated on the football. And in, and in actual fact, I was, I would say, partly instrumental in getting Graham the job, but at the time that uh, David Heard was having a bit of a tough time, the players were in a little bit of a, re a revolt about it. Graham Taylor was one of them. And at that particular time, there was a director on the board called Hennig's Dove, who was wanting to get in as chairman. He wanted to get the other directors out. And he coached Graham Taylor and the other players to write into the board and complain about him. And then if they did that, then he would get the other directors out and then he would take Graham on as a manager. Oh, wow. Because in, in between that, Graham in actual fact was, had sustained a hip injury and he was basically declared unfit for professional football and he spent a lot of time in my office at that time because I processed a lot of his paperwork for his insurance claim, and then I helped him with a with a, a testimonial game. So we got quite close. At that particular time, David Heard wasn't particularly interested in the commercial exposure of Lincoln City within the city of Lincoln. But when I spoke with Graham, uh, Graham was. So when he was appointed manager... He and I worked very closely together and most of the commercial things that we did and, and taking the team to the schools and to the community was initially my ideas, which David Heard had declined, but Graham picked them up. You, indirectly, are the forefather of Watford as a community club. Possibly. Yeah. You're, you're right to be humble about it. Uh, I, um, I went to the library yesterday and saw Graham Taylor's memoir and... Uh, 
I've read the Watford chapters, but I didn't read his time at Lincoln. So I don't know if you have his memoir or... Uh... Um, funny enough, I, I have his autobiography and I was a little bit surprised, a bit disappointed that my name wasn't mentioned. Mm. But, but what in actual fact happened... At the time we were at Lincoln, I had a secretary who was both secretary to me and secretary to Graham. Eventually, I married the secretary. Uh, and then many, many years down the line, I separated and divorced. And I think what had happened is that my ex-wife had still got the ears of Graham and, and put the knife in a little bit. So Graham, uh, who married his school sweetheart in actual fact and being together he didn't he didn't uh, go along the line of people getting divorced he was it was too uh, um, what shall i say uncatholic it's, with a small c yeah 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 so i think that's what happened and virtually all of the ideas that we had at lincoln graham took to watford that is very interesting indeed. Uh, I can't give Graham a right to reply. I could give Rita perhaps a, a reply as the executive or indeed Luther. So when Elton approached Lincoln, were you still at Lincoln or had you moved to Sheffield by then? No, I was, I was still at Lincoln. What in actual fact happened um, through Don Revy, yep. uh, there was a contact made with um, Graham and Watford through Elton John, and Graham turned it down because at that particular time, we were going quite well in the league. I spent a few nights in the car with Graham going to different away matches, watching players for the following season to enhance the quality of the side. Graham turned Watford down. Just not long after that, Graham and I travelled into North Wales to watch a match across there. We travelled back at night. Graham took a wrong turn in Manchester. We finished up in the back end of nowhere because he knew the shortcuts we got lost. We were, we were very late getting back home. We went into work the next morning. We were sat there and uh, Graham always used to come in and collect his posts from me. And we, we were sat with the pet just talking about bits and pieces. And the chairman came in un unexpectedly and looked at, started to chat and then looked at both of us and said, both of you look a bit tired, what have you been up to? He said, well, we've been, we were out last night, we were late getting back, we, what, what are you doing? Well, we were watching players ready for next season. And the chairman looked at both of us and said, well, now I've got you both here, let me just make this abundantly clear to you. As long as I'm chairman at Lincoln City, I don't want second division football. And promptly left, left the office to go hmm. to... It went to have an appointment out on the ground with somebody that he'd arranged. Graham looked at me. Both both of us were pretty down in the dumps. Graham had got tears in his eyes and said, what do you think to that, mate? I said, it's all right for you. All you've got to do is pick the phone up to Elton John and you can have a job. So he said, do you reckon... He said, I said, yeah, give him a ring. He'll, he'll take you on. He wanted you before. And then Hennig Dove, who was the chairman believe that the compensation which he'd written into his integrated contract at the time, 25,000, was the saviour of Lincoln City. And, and, and he had done, he'd done a good deal in letting Graham go to Watford. And I said to, I said to Graham at that time, that's all right, Graham. He said, what are you going to do? I said, well, 
I haven't got anything in line, so I'll stick it out here until something else crops up. But I said, you know, it's it's really disappointing, Graham, because we're trying to aim for the top because we were trying to develop Lincoln on the same lines as Ipswich Town. I mean, mm-hmm. Graham, Graham had got some personal contacts with Bobby Robson and we'd spent one or two evenings down at Ipswich talking to the Cobble brothers about what was necessary to develop Lincoln, etc. And and I said to Graham, look, if you aim for the top and you miss, we've got we're gonna be successful. If you aim for mediocrity and you miss, you've got failure. And the chairman aimed for mediocrity because he didn't want he didn't want to lose his position as chairman. And uh, after that the club went into decline. Yes. And so that twenty five thousand pound Almost a transfer fee was the best £25,000 Elton John had ever spent. And uh, Did you see Rocket Man, by the way, the Elton John movie? That, no, I didn't. They, for about 10 seconds, make reference to his football fandom. But I would love to see a movie, perhaps in about 20 years' time, of Elton John and Graham Taylor, because it's a story of brothers. Graham yes. and Elton were very, very close. Um, and it just proves Alex Ferguson's mantra that you have to pick your chairman. Yeah. Which is what I wanted to ask you next, because you did leave Lincoln in the end, going to the blue bit of Sheffield, then the red bit of Sheffield. In this no, book... No, no, no. the wrong way? I went to the red bit of Sheffield and then the blue bit. Thank you very much. It serves me right for writing Wednesday first. So who approached you to get to Bramall Lane, and why did you say yes? I'm qualified as a referee. I never reached the football league, but uh, I reached uh, the linesman in the Northern Premier League. And uh, one of my closest friendships with referees is Keith Hackett, who's written the foreword of my book. But when the referees used to come to Lincoln, I used to make sure they were looked after properly because it was the part and parcel of the part and parcel of the event and on one particular occasion there was a referee came called Keith Walker he got himself a bit of a reputation of being trying to be a bit of a a stickler Um, hadn't got the biggest reviews that you could possibly get but I got on with him all right and and one particular day it was a night match he came about two o'clock in the afternoon so I spent quite a bit of time with him um a bit inconvenient at the time, trying to get the match organised and uh, and spending time with him, but it, it worked. In that conversation, he said, "If I ever get, I'd like a job like yours." And I said, "Well, I'd like a job like like you've got. Nothing would suit me better than to be a referee." And he said, "If I ever get a job, would you help me?" I said, "Yeah, of course I would. You know, that's what we're here for—to help one another if we can." So, several months later. The phone rang and the receptionist said to me, I've got a Mr Walker from Sheffield on the phone. And I'd, I'd not picked up at all that Keith Walker had gone to Sheffield United as club secretary. And he sort of said, you remember that conversation we had that said you would help me, can you help me? Well, to be honest with you, I probably, after that, knew more just as much about Sheffield United as I did about Lincoln City because he was on the phone, well, at least three, four times a week. And then he got the job as the refereeing officer for the North American Soccer League. Oh, wow. You know, when there was the exodus across to the States. And he rang and said, 
would you be interested in Sheffield United? Because I'd left Link at that time. I was doing private consultancy work, not not in football, but uh, just private commercial consultancy work. I said, yeah, I will. He said, I'll make an appointment for you to see the chairman. And I went over to see the chairman 27th of December, but the first days of January 79, um, I'd got the job. And at that particular time, when we, when I was having the meeting with the chairman, he said, can you handle debt? I suppose being a bit naive, but a bit brazen, I said, yeah, yeah, come Lincoln City were up to the rise in debt. When I joined and I left them with no debt, no creditors and money in the bank and money invested on the London money market. So, you know, it's, been, it's worked. Right, he said, OK, that'll do fine. I got the job, opened the banker statements in when it came at in the end of January and the statement collectively came to just short of a million pounds overdrawn. Which today would be what, 12 million? Yeah, Probably a bit more. Goodness me. And this is the Sheffield United, which in 1978 wanted Maradona. So would yes. you say that they'd overreached themselves? I think, in fairness, they could have had Maradona. The only thing was, I mean, Harry Aslan went out to Argentina. This was just, this was in the close season before I joined. And, yes. and on this particular side, Johnny, all I can do is to relate to you the stories that Harry passed on to me because it was a very much a topic of conversation with Harry. But he went over and secured a deal for Maradona for £400,000. He rang the board, rang the chairman, and put chairman wise and said, can you approve it or whatever? And and chairman said, well, I'll have to speak to the directors. And on that particular night, so I am told, Harry was in his hotel room Next door was the club's coach, a fellow called Oscar Arcade, that was, spoke several languages. Yes, I've, I've heard great things, by the way, about Oscar Arthur. Yeah, um, it, it was all right, yeah. yeah. And uh, there was a knock on Harry's door, and it was the, the chief of police with a gun in his hand, pointed a gun to Harry and said, Maradona, no. Now, that's, whether or not that's true... I don't know. But I, all I, can... I wonder if that's in Guillaume Balaguet's book, which I haven't read yet, but the Maradona, because you can't libel the dead. Um, I wonder if that story is there. I think it might it also have something to do with the fact that, from the English point of view, the FA had only in 1978 allowed non-British Isle domiciled players to join. Yeah. So what in actual fact happened, that he, whilst he was across there, did a deal and brought Alex Sabella across to Sheffield United for a lot less money. And whilst he was there as well, he'd also picked up on the grapevine that Ozzy Ardelis and Ricky Villa was available. And because he was big friends of Bill Nicholson at Tottenham, he ran Bill Nicholson and um, Tottenham signed them. Well, the book is Football, an Insider's Job. It's out on 1889 books and it's written with John Dyson. Does John have a credit on the book? I've, I've paid thanks to John, yes. Yes, and and John's written a couple of books about his beloved Sheffield Wednesday. So you were yes. at Sheffield United. They are thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds in debt. You have a job which seems to involve everything but the pitch. Control, control of the management of the club, accounting and finance, sponsorship and marketing, control on match day, so security and... I guess, cleanliness and putting the stadium back to good use. Uh, you convene the board meetings 
And uh, I don't know, are you in charge of getting the groundsman to cut the training pitch as well? Yeah. Goodness. So how many hours a typical week would you work? I don't. I, I was in football for about 15 years, and I don't think I worked less than 70 hours a week. Crikey. For which I'm sure every Sheffield United Lincoln and Sheffield Wednesday fan would say thank you. Even though I imagine you're not... Do you get to games? Do people recognise you? I have been to probably, since I left, probably half a dozen. But one of the one of the reasons I don't, and I don't push it, when I joined Sheffield United, and as you say, you were responsible for match day uh, arrangements, and obviously that includes VIPs and guests, and, and visiting directors and or managers then that used to go around watching games. And when I first joined Sheffield United, I could not get a, a visiting director or a manager in the director's box because it was full of hangers-on, uh, friends of friends of friends of friends. And I said to the chairman, this is not right. We can't maintain the credibility in the football industry and not be able to open your doors up to equivalent people to yourself from other clubs. So we need to clear the director's box out. He says, well, I'll leave that to you, be it on your head. So I spoke to every one of the, the, the supposed guests, friends of this man or that man, and explained the situation. And without exception, they all accepted it. And I said to them, look, if I've got, if I've got vacancies in the box at any particular time, and you're thinking of coming, all you've got to do is ring and if I can fit you in, I will. So by virtue of clearing people out that, that I regarded as sponges, if that's the right word, mm, yes. I purposely have not put myself in a position where I could be regarded as a sponger. Oh, well, that's not true. They would let you in, for sure. Uh, well, well, the, the ones, the games, the, most of the games as I've been to, I have actual fact been to... Arsenal as a guest of Ken Fryer. Oh, lovely! Who was the CEO of Arsenal? It was it was a club secretary yes. at that time. Yes. Then moved on to CEO, yeah. and then and then a member of the board. That's right. And Arsenal are still one of the best teams in England. And I wonder if Mikel Arteta has met Ken Fryer either as a player or a manager. Is he still with us? Uh, yes, Ken's Great. still there. In fact, I think he's only just recently. I haven't spoken to him for a while, but I think he's only just recently stepped down off the board. I oh. think he's still, I think he's still a VIP with Arsenal. Oh yeah, don't... you don't leave Arsenal. You, do, no, you I don't. get welcome, don't you? Yeah. But Ken, Ken started as an office boy, sixteen years of age. Wow, I, I imagine he features in David Dean's new book, which is out now. And David Dean, well known because of the Arsene Wenger story, but there are certain yeah. figures. Uh, Michael Knighton as well is is probably the most uh, well-known. But we seem in football to now, I think because there's no access to the players anymore, we seem to have made a habit of asking where the money's coming from or seeing at Watford we've got Scott Duxbury, who's kind of Gino Pozzo's representative on earth. And a lot of fans have twigged that players and managers come and go, but the CEO and the owner stays and so that is where people exercise all their energy. Did people exercise energy to the people who owned the Sheffield clubs when you were club secretary? Well, it was com it was completely different because there, there wasn't really, and not until there was the transformation in Sheffield United status. But basically, 
that the chairman had an investment along with his fellow directors. He didn't have a 75% controlling majority. In fact, Bert McGee at Sheffield Wednesday, when I was there, I think had six shares. But he controlled control the club just as much as what a, probably more so than a current owner. So it, 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 it's slightly different. And back in the 70s, 80s, a successful businessman who's got his heart and soul into the club, and like in, in Sheffield, he's either a Wednesday night or a United night because it's virtually a religion across there. They would put the money into the football club and it gives them some privileges and some perks. And they, they'd obviously be able to meet visiting directors and business associates and probably conduct some business to benefit their company as well. But there wasn't the dictatorial situation that there is now and neither was there the volume of people within a football club to run a football club, which at the moment I find unbelievable. Well, there's just too many bodies in the room, too many cooks. Look, Johnny, what has changed in the staging of a football game? You're kicking off at three o'clock, You've got to get your crowd in. You've got to get all your officials in. You've got to get your visitors in. You've got to make sure all your players are registered and eligible to play. And the game kicks off. <clears throat> and, all right, there's some commercial elements attached to it. But it's no different in the 70s or even prior to that than what it is now. It's exactly the same. The game hasn't changed at all. And yet the staffing levels have changed. Because and the money is coming in to pay these stuff. I can't, un- I can't understand how an owner can come in and for continue to keep tipping his money in and not ask the questions, what the bloody hell's happening to my money? Where's it going? Well, I, did a, I did a due diligence exercise for a, an, an investor that wanted to buy a club. They were then in League Two. I visited the club. The club opened all the doors for me, access to any bit of information I wanted. They were heavily propped up by the chairman. The last but one meeting I had was with the chief executive, and I said, how how on earth do you manage the finances as they are? Do you know what he said? I'm not, I don't bother. Oh, no. Well, that's that's neglect, that's negligence. I said, hang on a minute. Your chief executive, your company secretary, you've got company responsibilities, you've got legal responsibilities with all the statutory rules and regulations. How can you not bother? Plus the fact you're on a very, very lucrative salary for somebody in the second division. He said, no, I don't bother. When we're running out of money, I just ring the chairman and he puts more in. Mm, sugar daddy. And, and that is now, I think, what in actual fact is happening in football in general. And the other side of the coin as well, I know we're transgressing a bit. No problem. But the, but the other side of the coin is I will never, ever, to this day, understand how a chief executive and a recruitment manager can determine who's going to be signed. Well, I know, I know exactly the person you need to talk to because Scott Duxbury has um, finally... After, so what for 10 years Gino Potto's been in charge... They, he does say, well, the manager has kind of a profile. He wants to play this formation. He wants to fit it in. But if the player's injured, we've been without our first choice midfield all season. No wonder. 
no, Rob Edwards only won three games. He's going to hopefully get this Middlesbrough job. Steve Gibson is one of the best chairmen in the business. And he knows, much like Dale Vince at Forest Green, the manager and the chairman need to work together. This director of football model, I mean, Manchester United fans have been crying out for one of those for about 10 years. Darren Fletcher's there. No one quite knows what Darren Fletcher does around the place. But yes, the people who sign the players should be the people who work with the players every day. Yeah, I mean, the, the other side of the coin you've got to ask yourself the question is, when those players are signed and then the manager has a bad spell of results and he gets the sack, why doesn't the, the chief executive or the recruitment manager get the sack as well? Well, did you hear what happened with Watford? Sorry, this is a huge tangent, but Watford apparently sacked their fourth uh, Pozzo-era recruitment director and then welcomed him back to work with Slaven Bilic when Rob Edwards left. If you're a member of staff who is a player, what on earth do you make of that? Do you just, in, the next time you've got a problem, do you go straight to the CEO because the player recruiter who brought you in, probably on a massive wage, isn't going to be there in a year's time? It is ghastly. Absolutely ghastly what's going on with Watford. And yay, as we speak, we beat Stoke City 4-0. That's another problem. And they do have very rich owners. But you, when you were involved in football administration, there weren't so many sugar daddies. It was still the era of the Cobolds, the Peter Hillwoods, the kind of benevolent local chairman. So did you get out just in time? Um, it's a good question, huh? uh, <laughs> I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know. I don't think I would want to have had the role that CEOs have at the moment, particularly with the players, because having having worked with Howard Wilkinson, Graham Taylor and Ian Porterfield, I dread to think what comments would have been passed to me if I'd told them we're just signing so-and-so and they didn't know. And, and plus the fact I don't, I won't have the competency to, to determine what players are, are necessary. And neither do the CEOs at the present time. But you would be able to put the bonus structure into their contract. Yeah, the one thing I have, the one thing I have said, I don't really. I mean, kind of eighty-two now, so. But I don't. I wouldn't want to go back into football and do the work that I did. But I wouldn't half relish somebody taking over a football club and saying, "Look, I want to run down on what's happening in this club." or if or where I can streamline it to cut the cost. I wouldn't mind dabbing my feet in the water on that sort of issue. There are, well, if anything, Manchester United is being run by consultants. It used to be run by economists and uh, actuaries. But yes, there used to be a football club there. In the lower leagues, I'm not preaching to the converted here, but even at Lincoln City's level, you had the Cowley brothers there. They did amazing things. Were you... Uh, and I, I don't know who the chairman was at that time, but the chairman must have placed a lot of faith in Danny and Nicky and how they were running the pitch because then the fans are taken care of and then you work to, and then the FA Cup run helped, but you aim to commercialise the club and make it something that people in Lincoln can be proud of in the way that people in that bit of Sheffield can be proud. And I've been to um, Chapel Town, which is a big blue area of town. Yes, and, it is. Uh, not far from Stocksbridge. And I think people in Sheffield, they want to go to Hillsborough in a great stadium. Darren Moore is a perfect manager who can manage expectations. And 
things are going well for both Sheffield clubs in different divisions at the moment as we speak on October the 4th. I'm slightly perturbed by who's invested into Sheffield United. I don't know if you'd want to comment on that. I don't know them. With the Saudis, Saudi money. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't know them. I don't... uh, I don't... I have been once at the invitation of the ex-joint owner, Kevin McCain. He invited me back once. The Saudis were... Some of the Saudis were there, never even spoke. And I understand that the club, they don't see him because they're never there. It just creates a chasm. Um, Kevin McCabe's name rings a bell. Uh, I don't particularly want to talk about that episode of Sheffield United, but again, it's very easy to forget that West Ham registered. The West Ham CEO didn't do their job to register a player and Sheffield United suffered. And guess who the West Ham CEO was? It's the same same man that was a CEO at Hillsborough when the Hillsborough disaster. Oh, I didn't know that. Graham McCrell. Oh, that's interesting. And in this book, Football and Insider's Job, which um, I don't want you to tell me all the, the the things that went around. And Liverpool Echo reported on your appearance at the inquiry where you said you held back 250 tickets so as yeah. to uh, ease the number of people in the Leffings Lane end. So I think the the thing that, looking back 30 years, is that it could have been anywhere, and indeed it did happen in other places, but it just happened to be on television in an enormously important fixture in a very politically-minded... Politically, as in kind of football clubs were thinking of breaking away to form the Money League. Um, In the book, I don't go into detail, into a lot of detail about my appearance in the the, uh, coroner's court, but the year before I left, Sunderland were playing Norwich in the League Cup. And at that particular time, my chairman was on the Football League Management Committee and we were asked if we would like to, if there was a replay, if we'd like to stage the replay. And and the Football League sent some staff down to sort out the arrangement and they put Norwich at the cop end and Sunderland at Leppings Lane end. I said to them, you've got it wrong, but it's their game, so they have to make the decision. The chairman contacted me to see how the meeting gone. I said, I want you to do me a favour, chairman. I want you to write to the league and I want, to, I want you to say, if they're going to do it that way, we absolve ourselves from all responsibilities because it won't work. It's a problem. So, ultimately, I had Graham Kelly on the phone from the Football League. I said, what's all this about? I said, you've got it wrong, Graham. Sorry. Can you let me have a, a revision? All I did was switch Sunderland to the cop and Norwich to the Leppings Lane because of the volume of support that most clubs would bring. The, the year before the disaster, Liverpool played Nottingham Forest at Hillsborough in a semi-final. Yeah, yeah. They had some problems with crushing and they got some complaints, but they'd put Liverpool at Leppings Lane and Forest at the cop. And it, it would not work. I mean... The reason I used to keep 250 tickets behind, I didn't keep them for all the games, but certainly with Liverpool. I'd had problems with Liverpool when I was at the club for a league match, and they all turned up late, and we had to. Well, there was a potential of a, a disturbance outside the ground, and myself and the chief superintendent went to ask the referee to delay the kickoff, and he wouldn't. He declined. 
So here the police and myself made a decision to close the central tunnel, cover it with the police officers, with some barriers, and then open the gates and let them come in either on the left wing's corner or the right wing corner. And that was because the Liverpool supporters always had a practice of converging on, onto the ground at the last minute, knowing that if they created a fuss, they get in for no. Uh, okay. I, I held some tickets back, which gave me a little bit of protection. I see. Ah, right. I see that perfectly. And the the disaster of 89 led to the Taylor Report and to the all-seater stadium and to... Well, it was too late. And, and seriously, to, to this day, I know it can't be proven, it's, it's water under the bridge, but if Liverpool had had the cop, there might still, have been, might still have been the problem with the crowds getting there late, but the cop had got far more turnstiles to contend with the crowd. Leppin's Lane was always a difficult end. And it, with the right police supervision, they would have got them in. But at Leppin's Lane end, it's, it was uh, difficult. Yes. And um, and that memorial is still there at Hillsborough. And I hope Sheffield Wednesday have Premier League football again because it is a wonderful club. And having spoken to John Dyson, who is um, who helped you dot the I's and cross the T's on football and insiders job, which is out uh, as this goes out, came out on October 10th. But we're talking in advance of that. Um, I, we can't end on that low note. So I just wanted to ask in, in the period after you left the game. Have you looked for results of all three of the teams, and indeed yes. Manchester United? Yes. Who do you look for first? I think I probably look for Lincoln. Oh, lovely! Because basically, the hometown, and, and it's uh, it gives me an instant connections with my mum and dad, who are no longer with me. Yeah, I think very often it, I used to get asked the question, "Who do you support?" And when you work for somebody. You support the people that you're that's paying your salaries. Correct. So, just a quick story. When I went moved from Sheffield United to Sheffield Wednesday, the first, and this is in the book actually, the, the very first week I was there was with the then current secretary Eric England because he hadn't actually retired. I was working with him for two or three weeks until he reached retirement age, and. I went into the boardroom and I made two mistakes on my first day. Firstly, I asked how Sheffield United had gone on because they were all watching the screen. And secondly, I sat in a very posh chair, which turned out to be the chairman's chair. And I was promptly advised, you don't openly ask about Sheffield United and you don't, Sit in that effing chair. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but uh, when I left Sheffield United and went to Wednesday, my so-called friends cut me dead. I only retained one couple from my Sheffield United days through my Sheffield Wednesday time and through my later life. All the others didn't want to know. And it's one of the reasons why football just is, is awful. There are so many great things about the game, the goal, the tackle. But as Gareth Southgate said, I love the game, but the industry is just a load of nonsense. How can you lose friends just because you go over to a side who play in blue shirts? I went to, and I've told this story before, I went to Watford Norwich at the beginning of the year. Norwich were three up and the Norwich fans were giving Watford fans everything. And I just looked at them and said, 
you're going to have problems with your gas bill as well later in the year. We are all the same. We can't be divided by football club, um, even though it's kind of religion. It's like being different denominations. Some people are of a blade domination. Some are the owls. I suppose for the moment it's quite good that they're in different divisions. It would be the Dick Chester Derby, although really it should be called the Derek Dugan Derby. Just two quick ones on yes. on, on that. Sheffield United, as, as I said earlier, I was heavily in debt and we needed to do something. So it, when we cleared the hangers-on out of the director's box, we started using them for potential sponsors and, and we would look after them and then cajole them into a sponsorship deal. One of those deals was a car company and um, Derek Dewey, who was then commercial manager, got him to do a contra deal in return for the supply of some cars to cut our running costs down. They could have the ground advertising or, or sponsorship deal in return. They did that and their corporate colours was blue and white. So we put the ground adverts up as blue and white. <clears throat> it came to the shareholders' meeting, and all the business, the agenda had completed, any other business, United Night stood up, who in actual fact owned, owned garages as well, and said, do you mind if I ask the, can I ask a question, Chairman? He said, yes. I want to address it to that country bumpkin that we've employed as a as a secretary hmm. uh, why does he not realize that this is not that this is the red end of the city and we don't have blue so I said to uh, my response to him was I tell you what you come to my office tomorrow in my office in the morning and you and I will go down to this garage and we will we'll change the deal from them to you and you can paint it in red and white. And they shut up because he didn't want the deal, because it was too good a deal. Mm. When I was at Hillsborough, I secured the services of a Majesty of the Queen to open the cop. You finish up, in actual fact, having to meet with the Lord Lieutenant of South Yorkshire and the Queen's private secretary. And in the conversations, the Queen's private secretary said, and where do you lay the red carpet? And, and I said, excuse me, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you're actually at the wrong end of the city. Very uh, good. <laughs> because it, this is the blue end. And he said, that's quite all right. She could walk on the blue carpet. There'd be a change for her. In, in Sheffield, it's a religion. If you're not in a city where there is that type of fierce rivalry and feeling about one or the other, it's difficult to understand. I found it difficult. I found it amusing in some instances, but that's what happened. Yeah, it's a tripwire, and you have to remember which is the red and which is the blue. Uh, I just wanted to finish by giving a shout to Alan Biggs, whose voice I've heard for decades on Five Live. Uh, he, I don't, I don't know, helped give an introduction or he helped you with jogging your memory, but Alan Biggs called you essentially the CEO of first Lincoln City, then Sheffield United. I don't know why you'd think Sheffield Wednesday would come first. Uh, and then Sheffield Wednesday. Dick Chester, the book is Football, an Insider's Job. I should ask also, to finish, are you retired? <laughs> My partner would tell you differently. Yes, I'm retired. I, don't, I basically... 81? I've got two. 
82. Yeah, don't miss oh, out that year. 82 oh, years old. Oh, oh, you don't retire. Well, when I was in football, I started doing a, a database of all the football results because I wanted it for, included it for when I, when I was editor of the club programme at Lincoln City. I wanted all the stats of like Lincoln playing Exeter, what's the past records, etc. And nobody had them. So I started putting the database together and I have still, I have got now every single football result since football started for English football and Scottish football. Oh, wow. And I've also got, I've also got reports that can come off it. I can actual fact, if you said to me, Watford's playing Charlton Athletic next week. What's their results? I can give you all the results. I can tell you what their half-time scores was. And I can tell you from each half-time score what the, what the full-time score was. And I could tell you that in a Watford-Charlton game in 2012, Fernando Forestieri was sent off for tripping over his own foot. The referee thought he dived. He was already on a yellow. He was sent off. And Alman Abdi scored the most amazing free kick in the second half. Yeah. So I've, all I've done is just put flesh on the bones of, I think it was a 2-0 win in 2012. And that's, in fact, about 10 years to the day. Uh, when you get to my age, Dick Chester, time vanishes. You don't know how fast it is until it's gone. But I will spend some time with Football and Insider's Job, which is out via 1889 Books. And uh, I will let you prepare the books for tonight's games. Just like the library! Just like the library! 